1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Probably the last uh, message I'll, I'll probably preach from this chapter. Then we start 2 Thessalonians, what I'm looking forward to. And uh, we're going to start getting a little bit more into prophecy. You pray for me that I'll have the mind of God as far as you know, kind of lo- leapfrogging after that. Perhaps starting next year uh, on a series on Sunday mornings, we're going to preach through Revelation to kind of build our church up in that. And a lot, of, a lot of good things in Revelation will help us, plus some good stuff on prophecy that I think that our church needs at this critical time. First Thessalonians 5, I want you to read the passage with me tonight together. We're just going to read one verse. Four words. One verse, four words. First Thessalonians 5.25, all together, church, please. Brethren, pray for us. Let's say that again. Brethren, pray for us. How many of you need people to pray for you? Say amen. Yeah. How many appreciate it when people pray for you? It's a wonderful thing. I love it when people pray for me. I need it. Man, if anybody needs it, I need it a lot. There. And you need prayer. Amen. If you're, you're not on somebody's prayer list, there's something wrong there. Amen. And we want to change it a little bit for the church this evening. We want to look at this matter of intercessory prayer and this urgent, urgent appeal Paul made to his friends at Thessalonica when he said, brethren, pray for us. Now, Father, thank you tonight as we enter to the service. Jesus is praying for us. Thank you. He's the great intercessor, our great high priest, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. Thank you that he's holy, harmless, sinless, and separate from sinners. Tonight, we need to learn the art of intercessory prayer. We need to learn the discipline of praying for one another. God, change our prayer lives. God, revive our prayer lives. For some, start a prayer life tonight, I pray, that will involve interceding for people. May there, God, there be just a, a hunger and a desire to intercede for the needs of others, such as we've never known before, that, Lord, you be glorified through this. And we pray these things of you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Out in the country of Kentucky there, the, the state of Kentucky, out in a country church there, uh, a family went to church, and they were kind of sitting in the background. You know how that is. Sometimes you visit a church, and you're a visitor there. And I don't know about you, but you know, kind of being around church a little bit, I kind of like as a visitor, I like to be near the back just a little bit to kind of observe what's going on. I don't like being right up front because I don't know what kind of preacher he might be. I don't know if he's the kind of kind of walks around and steps on people's feet, things like that. So I kind of like to be out of the firing distance and be in the back there. And this family was in the church there, and they noticed a, a, a family there where they brought their child in, and they just didn't feel like they were confident in the, in the, in the children's ministry and nursery there, so they brought their, their little boy in, and he was a handful. He was one of those little boys that just kept moving around. He was a, I mean, Wiggle Worm didn't even define the kid. I mean, the kid just like, he just kept moving around, and he was talking and looking at people and all those kind of things. You know, you've experienced that. When a little kid gets up on the chair, starts looking at things, and he started just, get, just getting out of hand there, and the pastors just passed all the songs and the offerings and all that. He's about getting ready to preach, and the boy just, just did something there that got, got his uh, father just kind of like, yeah, I better take him out of the church there, and, he, and, and, the, and the boy kind of snapped back at his dad, and his dad just kind of jerked him and t- picked him up, and he started walking in. He's holding his son and almost had him over his shoulder like this. He's walking out. As he's doing so, everybody just kind of stopped and watched the father walk with the little kid. And as they did so, the kid kind of captured everybody's attention. He said this, y'all pray for me now. I'm going out. Y'all pray for me right now, you know? And I think that's how we pray sometimes. We think sometimes we're in trouble. We say, God, I, yeah, I need somebody to pray for me. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, because this is the last, last time we're going to be in this Bible study, chapter 5, for a little while here. 1 Thessalonians 5 is an exhortation. An exhortation is a word of encouragement. It's an exhortation from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. I said some things about this last week, but Paul really loved the church of Thessalonica. It was probably one of his favorite churches. 
And all of chapter 5, in fact, the entire book is Paul's exhortation about a victorious walk in the Spirit. And you'll notice in the first part of this passage, in verses 11 to 15, Paul exhorted them in this first part, he exhorted them about proper spiritual conduct and etiquette among each other as members. So going back there for a moment, if you'll look back at it, in verse 11, he encouraged them to comfort one another and edify one another. And then verses 12 and 13, he said, Know your pastor, know the men who teach in your church, know the teachers in your church who labor among you in the word of God and admonish you. And he says, don't, don't hold them in high esteem. And then he says in verse 14, just kind of in general guidelines, verses 14 and 15, he says, be watchful for all the body of Christ. He says, you know, warn them that are unruly, those who have submission issues. He says, warn them, they need to stay in check there. And he says, comfort the feeble-minded, those who are weak-spirited and get discouraged very easily. He says, support those who are weak. Uh, and bodily and, and as well as emotionally. He said, be patient towards all men. He said, see that none render evil for evil. I mean, he's just giving a, a myriad of things, which if he had just stopped there, it was a great epistle, but he's just taking some time in verses 11 to 15 to talk about proper conduct among the church. And let me just pause and say this as a church, that as we grow right now as a church and continue to grow as a church, well, we must be observant of the members of our church, and we must be observant of the attendees. And we need to sometimes, as, we, as much as we want to be with our friends on Sundays and on Wednesdays, we need to look around and be sensitive to new people coming to the church or we're reaching out to them or maybe someone that they're, maybe they're struggling, maybe they're, they're moving further and further back in the church because they're struggling in their, their Christian walk and we need to be observant of that to help encourage them there. And then notice in verses 16 to 24, which we spent some time on, Paul is now exhorting the believers about their personal walk with God. Now, I'm thankful that when Paul wrote his letters, he was concerned about the walk that every believer had with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I hope you're concerned about your walk with the Lord. I'm concerned about your walk with the Lord. I'm concerned that you're reading your Bible. I'm concerned that you're praying. I'm concerned that you're in church. You know, we don't try to be busybodies and and be intrusive, but you know, when you get a message from someone, hey, we didn't see a church, we missed just because we're concerned about you. We want to make sure you're not sick, you're not ill, we want to make sure that you're growing the Lord, things are okay there, and those, those are important things. And so notice Paul, beginning verse, uh, verse 16, just hits on a number of things that are essential to, to a victorious Christian life and a spiritual walk. He talks about giving thanks in all things. He talks about praying without ceasing. He talks about not putting out the fire of the Holy Spirit. He talks about not despising prophecies. we got to be careful that we just don't get into the routine of, of coming to church and we get used to preaching. I gave a devotion to staff today that I might preach in church that just reminded to us that, you know, that uh, as Christians, we need to focus on the why of being in church and not the what of being in church. Sometimes we look at just the busyness and what we do. We focus on what we have to do, and we look at it as being very laborious, and we look at it as being very cumbersome when we need to focus on the why and the why is that we come to church to worship God, amen? And we come, and the why in church is because we glorify the Lord. And the why in church is we want, to, we want God to fill our hearts and touch our lives there. So, you know, he's talking about don't despise the prophecy of God's word. He reminded them, prove all things, and hold fast to that which is good. He said you need to abstain from all appearance of evil. Hey, this, Paul was writing to a church that was in a declining culture. It was a pagan culture. They weren't getting any better. And the only way the culture can get better, they need to get people saved. Hey, we're in a declining culture. We're not going to change this culture with more reform. We're not going to change this culture with more welfare. We're not going to change this culture with more, with more laws. We're not going to change this culture by changing politicians. This culture is going to get changed when it gets, the, when it gets the dosage of the gospel of Jesus Christ and gets saved. Amen? I mean, the gospel changes lives. And churches change lives. And so we need more churches started. And we need more men of God to proclaim the word of God. But notice we get in this third part, this last part, exhortation. And Paul's been pouring out his heart in verses 1 to 24 about them. You know, help one another in church. 
take care of yourself. But Paul could do this in verse 25 because he knew these people. And these people respected his authority as, a, as, as, a, as a, an apostle. They respected his authority as their founding pastor. He knew they had tender hearts and would follow through with all the things that he said in the previous verses. But he's being transparent with them. Before he closed this letter, he made an appeal to his friends. He made an appeal to this church plant. Because everything you read there is about them, and how he cared for them, and how he loved them, how he's concerned about their growth, the spread of the gospel, their spiritual faith. And then he says this in verse 25, just kind of out of nowhere. He says, brethren, pray for us. He says, I, I'm praying for you, but you need to pray for us. You need to pray for me. You need to pray for Luke. You need to pray for Silas. You need to pray for Timothy. You need to pray for that gospel team that came down to Thessalonica. They got very warm with you, spent time with you, persecuted with you, had to relieve, and then some of them came back. He says, we need you to pray for us. He said, pray for our needs. Pray for our lives. He says, we need you to pray for us. He's encouraging them about this great exercise of spiritual uh, intercession where we pray for one another. Now, the word intercession is a Bible word. It's a good word. And it means the following. It means to request an interview, and to make an appeal on behalf of another person. I thought that's a kind of interesting definition. It means to request an interview and to make an appeal for someone else. It would be something like this. Let's say you, 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 uh, you want something. In fact, I'm thinking about one of our, our, our members who, because their, um, their visa ran out, uh, they had to go back to a foreign country, and they're back there right now with their, some of their kids, and one of the, spou the, the spouse is still over here. And uh, they're waiting to try to get an interview with the senator in that country who, they, if they get this interview, they're, they're going to go to the senator to appeal that they can get a green card, if you can get a visa status, so they can come back here and complete the process to get a green card so they can stay here as a permanent resident. That's a good thing. But they need this interview first. And intercession is when you and I are requesting an interview with the God who answers prayer, amen, with the God of all heaven, and appealing to the God of heaven on behalf of the needs of other people. Intercession is when we make a petition on behalf of other people. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.1, he told the church at Ephesus, he said, first of all, prayers, supplications, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight this. We can never pray too much for someone. If anything, we need to pray more, and we need to enlarge our prayer list, and there's more we need to do. Ian Bounds, who's probably one of the greatest uh, probably writers on prayer and knew something about prayer, one of the greatest men who have prayer that ever lived. If you don't have his books on prayer, you should get those books on prayer. But he wrote this. He said, he said intercession is talking to men for God. He said, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater than all of that. I thought that's a great, great thought that he meant there. Talking to men for God is a great thing. That's witnessing and so many. But talking to God for men is greater still. A Sunday school class was meeting and a teacher asked a question. The teacher said, what is intercession? To which one of the students replied, speaking a word to God for us, sir. And so tonight, even though we should know it, and even though we may practice it, we want to delve a little bit further tonight on Paul's request, brethren, pray for us, and look at this matter of intercession on behalf of one another. I want you to see three things tonight, then you can go home. Number one, I want you to see the encouragement in intercession. Intercession is a great means of encouragement. Dr. Daniel Kim, who pastors in, in South Korea, 
Great man of God. He's been pastor, I guess, for 60 years or so. He's about 85, 86. Maybe he's 88 years of age, still pastoring right now. Still in good health. A little bit slower, but still in good health. I, I was sitting in a, a service years ago where he was preaching over in Asia, and he made this statement. He said, the most important way I show you that I love you is by praying for you. Now, you had to hear that from this, 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 this uh, aged man of God as he spoke very slowly in English because English is not his first language. And as he said there, it just kind of captivated everybody in this large seat auditorium. He said, the greatest, the most important way I show you that I love you is by praying for you. And I, and I would echo that tonight. I think the greatest way we can show our love for one another, our love for the church, our love for our family, our love for people at a distance is to pray for them. Now, intercessory prayer is a great and effective means of encouragement. If you want to be an encourager, you need to be an interceder for people. Let me tell you why. First of all, first of all, when we intercede for other people, it encourages the person we're praying for that he is love and you're on their heart. Paul said in Colossians 2.1, he says, I have great heaviness in my heart for you. You know, uh, people appreciate it to know that you're on their heart and that you pray for them. I encourage you, God puts somebody on your heart and mind, you ought to pause right there that moment to pray for them. I mean, I have through the day, I mean, I have my prayer time, but I have through the day, I mean, I have hundreds of names that come to my mind. I'll think about somebody around the, around the world, and the moment they come to my mind, that's just the Holy Spirit speaking to me, I better take a moment to pray for that person. Secondly, it's an encouragement because it lets the person you're praying for know that you're in the battle with them. That's a big thing, amen? They need to know that you're in the thicket of the battle with them. Many years ago, my wife got diagnosed her second time with cancer, and uh, we were just, you know, we had gone through all the press with the doctor, and so that day, I drove her over at about uh, 4.30 in the morning, drove her to UCSF Medical Center, and took her over to the older building. We got her all prepped and everything, and we were waiting in the room for them to, to, uh, to take her out to, for the anesthesia and all of that kind of stuff there. And now it's about 6.15 in the morning, and my phone got off, and I looked at my caller ID, and it was from Dr. Raymond Barber. How many remember Dr. Barber when he's been here to preach for us? Dr. Barber's a great man of God. He's about 90 years of age and, and uh, still a great man of God. But uh, Dr. Barber, I had just sent him a text message. Hey, if you, I said, if you get a chance, could you and Mrs. Barber just take a moment to pray for my wife? I said it about the week before. I said, would you pray for her? This is the date of her surgery. Would you be in prayer for that? And I asked a number of prayer partners around the country to pray for her. And I got this call from Dr. Barber, 615. And normally I would not take it because they say not to answer the cell phone in those rooms. And I took the call anyway. And if you know Dr. Barber, he had this, this, he had this, he's a southern gentleman. He had this long Texas drawl. And he called my name out. He called me by my first name. He said, brother, I just called you to let you know I'm praying for you. But before you hang up, I want to pray with you right now. I'll be honest with you. I started weeping because I was very humbled that that man of God would call me. Uh, it was 9 o'clock his time or 8 o'clock his time. They would take a moment to call me and pray with me over the phone. And uh, when I put it on speakerphone. I said, if you don't mind, put on speakerphone. I want my wife to hear this as well. And that man of God started praying. And I'm telling you what, I felt like Elijah was praying at that moment. Amen. You know what I mean? He just started praying. And just it kind of passed the time real quickly. And I was very thankful for that. And, my, uh, and then another time, I remember my wife's first, my first, her first surgery she had. And uh, a little nervous because we didn't, really didn't know the outcome number. We had more questions. We had answers. And uh, they had just taken her out to anesthesia there. And I was in the hallway there. And I was going to stay there in the waiting area. And uh, a preacher came that I knew. And, uh, and he came out nowhere. And I said, man, what are you doing here? And he said, well, my preacher sent me here. He said, told me to come up here. And I just came here to just stay, stay with you and pray with you. I'll stay as long as you'd like me to stay. I said, brother, I said, I'm trusting God. Through this. You don't need to stay here all this time. I'm going to be good. And I said, why don't we have prayer together? And he, he prayed. I mean, I'll tell you what. Now, I, I don't have that happen a lot of times. But for those few times it happened, it's a blessing. 
it's an encouragement, okay? And I want to tell you tonight, if you're someone who's a little bit reluctant to let people pray for you, the best thing you can do is let people pray for you. And the best thing you can do is pray for other people as an intercessor. Let me tell you a third thing. Uh, we're talking about the encouragement as an intercessor. Third, when you, when, you, when you pray for someone else, it gives strength and an inspirational surge to that person. Now, I've been in many bedsides. I've been in many homes. Deacons, staff, whoever it may be. And these are spiritual people. And by the way, I'm thankful for a spiritual church. I'm thankful for people who love God. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't care who you are. There's an inspirational surge God gives to you when somebody prays for you. I mean, there's something about it that just changes that moment for you. And whatever darkness, kind of like I said Sunday, Sunday, Sunday evening, I said the, the, the morning coming, you felt like the morning just rose right then. Fourthly, when we pray, we pray for other people. Fourthly, it can help deliver someone from the bondage of sin. You just never know. I mean, when someone gets enslaved by sin, it delivers them from the bondage of sin because maybe that praying that you're doing for them came at the right time. And there's a fifth thing I want you to notice. Fifth, it is a ministry that every Christian can do. Now, the Bible records for us in the intercessory prayers of others. I don't know if it's in your notes, but if not, you want to take some notes tonight. And I gave you three tonight in, in point number one. In Exodus chapter 20... <coughs> Abraham and Sarah are down, they're down there in, 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 in uh, the, the land of the Philistines. <coughs> to protect Sarah from the Philistine men, God afflicted them or chastened all the women. And none of the women could bear children. God closed up their wombs. And then God got a hold of uh, Abimelech, the, the king, and started talking with him. And he started realizing what was going on. He said, now I want you to do something. He says, don't do anything bad to Abraham. He said, he's a prophet. He will pray for you. And so we read here, notice in, in Genesis 20, verse 7, that Abraham went to prayer for this, this pagan man. It says, Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. Now, that's a great thing that while Abraham was there, and he, and he wasn't there under the right, right reasons. He came under pretense there. But God, he got that right, and God still recognized he had a great ministry. Because if you study Abraham's life, we'll see something about it later. He had a great ministry of praying. There, down there for the Philistines, he prayed for God to open the wombs of all the women there in that area of Gerar. He opened their wombs so they could bear forth children. Now, we see a great example there of the ministry of prayer. Notice another one in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 32, Israel is in big, big trouble. Israel has made the golden calf. They did all this while Moses was up on the mountain <coughs> getting the commandments from God. And God, God comes down there with Abraham, I mean with Moses, and God's cleaning house. If you read Exodus 32, I mean, he's, God is cleaning house there. I mean, I mean there, the Levites stand up, the, the, Le, the sons of Levi stand alongside Moses, and several hundred of the Israelites are slain. These were the instigators of this idol worship and other nonsense they were doing there. And this is all settling out. God, God said some things to Moses, like, you know, and he said this many times. He said, well, Moses, you know what? Let me, let me just wipe all these people out, and you can start all over. Well, I'll give you good people. I'll start all over. And Moses didn't feel that way. Now, you've got to bear in mind, God prepared his heart, and he had a burden for three million people. Not about you. I, I think he was the pastor of the largest church ever, okay? And we don't believe the church was in the Old Testament there. But you have to think about this. To manage three million people and Jews on top of that, okay? I mean, just their hearts and what they did. And the Bible tells us here something very interesting. Notice verses 31, 32. Moses returned unto the Lord, and he said, this is his prayer, his intercession. Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Now, he's acknowledging, God, they messed up. 
He told God exactly what they did. He said, God, I'm going to confess exactly what their sins were. Then he said, yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sins, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Now listen to this prayer of Moses. Lord, forgive them. And Lord, if, you, if you're not going to forgive them, he says, blot me out of the book of life. Treat me like a heathen man. Treat me like an unsaved man at the great white throne judgment. Blot my name out of the book of life. I mean, that's pretty strong praying. I mean, that showed his heart for these people. And of course, God did forgive them, and God gave them another opportunity. And then notice, if you would, 1 Samuel 12, 23, another example here. Here's Samuel. Samuel is a great intercessor. Notice what it says here. He said, moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Now, now there's two things I want you to notice in that passage. In that verse, Samuel's talking about the sin of prayerlessness, that we should pray without ceasing. He's talking about, he said, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. But in the specifics, he's talking about ceasing to pray for people, for the people and trust him. Now listen, if you have a family, God's entrusted that family to you. You need to pray for your family. If you've got a Sunday school class, you've got a route, You've got some group of people that God has given you responsibility for. And if you're not praying for them, it's a sin not to pray for them. It's a sin for me not to pray for this church. It's a sin for you not to pray for one another. He said here, God forbid that I should sin and ceasing to pray for you. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, Paul said something here. Because Paul echoed what Jesus did. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Jesus prayed for the people he ministered to. Paul prayed for the churches and their members. And we'll see some instance of that in a minute. But Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1. He said, Always in every prayer of mine, listen to the statement. Listen to the statement. Making requests with joy. Always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy. Now, Paul had some hardships. And Paul had some difficult people he had to deal with. But Paul teaches us an important principle about prayer. He said, always in every prayer of mine, making requests with joy. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Is it joy for you to pray for people? Is it a joy to pray for people that are difficult, that do you wrong, that are adversarial to you, that are in your face? Paul said, always in every prayer am I making requests with joy. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is our praying pray more imprecatory, in other words, praying for judgment, than it is intercessory? And it's wrong for us to even enter to the place of prayer if it's not a joy to pray for other people. I mean, it's a burden, but it should be a joy to lift their names up before God and to pray for them. Listen, I was reading my devotions many months ago, and I read that, and it kind of jumped out at me that day. And God changed my, my whole outlook on things. And God changed my prayer. I took another dimension there as I started thinking about that aspect of praying and praying with joy for other people. D.L. Moody told the story about a praying cripple, about a little girl that was born... Uh, where she could not walk, and she was pretty much bedridden and depending on people to move around. And because of that, she just had a lot of health complications. And there at about 9 or 10 years of age, the doctor came in and told her parents that basically she didn't have long to live. They, he, he said, I can't give you time, but she doesn't have long to live. And she was pretty distressed, even though she was safe. She was pretty distressed, and her parents were distressed. And so they contacted Brother Moody, and they asked D.L. Moody to come to visit her. And and uh, so he came there to see her, and he could tell how pitiful the situation was. She was distressed, and family was distressed, and she was talking about her complaints and stuff. And then he stopped, and he just said, you know, maybe, he says, now listen, he said, God's not done with you yet. May I remind you tonight, God's not done with you yet too, amen? He said, God's not done with you yet, honey. He said, I want to tell you something. He says, while you're on this bed, God can use you. You can bring prayers to God. You can pray for the loss of this community to get saved. He says, I want to challenge you. 
I'm going to challenge you whether God gives you one day or God gives you 100 years in your life. He says, would you pray for the people of this community? Would you pray for the churches here? He says, and we'll help you with that. You tell us what you need, we'll help you with that. She said, well, if you can start, she said, maybe just give me a list that I can start with people that I can pray for. She says, give me the names of 10 people that are lost that I can pray for. D.L. Moody gave her the names. He was a great sewer. He kept names of people that were lost. He gave her names of 10 people. Well, stop, something, she started praying, and that list started getting larger and larger and larger. And she started getting word got around that this little girl was praying for people. So she started keeping logs, uh, uh, names of people. She kept a log of names she was praying for. And she'd pray for them earnestly. She didn't pray something like this. She didn't say, well, God, please save uh, Billy Brown. And God, please save, uh, you know, Joe Davis. She prayed things, Lord, you know Joe Davis is a, is a man that's got a wife and four kids. And you know this man needs to get saved very badly. And you know this man, is, he's struggling right now in his life. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will come down and say that. I mean, she prayed like a great prayer. She learned how to pray and get a hold of God. Well, things started happening in that city over time. And the churches started to sense a surge in their, in, 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 in their churches. And, and, uh, and there was a great religious interest and spiritual fervor in that city there. And, uh, and all of a sudden, churches in that community, in that area, they started having nightly meetings. And multiple churches were having multiple revival meetings at the time. And they were packed and overflowing. And they had to have a extended, or what they, the old country churches called protracted meetings. And they started having these protracted meetings. And things were going on there. And so... Uh, but D.L. Moody heard about, uh, started re realizing that, and he went to go, go uh, see the little girl, and she says, hey, she said, Brother Moody, tell me what's going on with these churches. I heard this revival going on. And he said, oh, dear. He says, you don't even know. He says, the churches are packed out. And she starts saying, well, tell me, tell me about so-and-so. And he said, well, that person got saved. And, and she said, well, tell me about some other names. And he started bringing her names. He talked to the pastors, bring names to her. Well, a few weeks went by, and this revival is going on in the city, in these villages, and people are getting saved, and things are happening. But a few weeks went by, and the girl took a turn for the worse, and her body started getting weaker and weaker and then God took her home her family was sad and they called D.L. Moody up and they said hey can you uh, come over and visit with us and he said I want to go to her room and I want to see how things were before before she passed away they had taken her body out and by the time he got there and they hadn't touched anything on her bed her bed was unmade and he saw a piece of paper there and scrawled on this piece of paper were names of people and he saw that there was a little cross next to each one of those names, and they were checkmarked. And he started looking around. He put his hand under the pillow, and he found rolls of paper underneath her pillow. He started pulling up these rolls. They're like scrolls. And he had the names of hundreds and hundreds of people that names were submitted to her that she prayed for. And next to every one of those names of people that got saved was a cross that was checked off where those people got saved. This little girl literally prayed hundreds of people into the kingdom of heaven during that time of revival. Hey, le listen tonight. Prayer, intercessory prayer, is an encouragement to the people that you're praying for. Notice the second thing tonight. Be an encourager by praying for other people. Now, we see the encouragement by, through intercessory prayer. I want you to notice the endeavor through intercessory prayer. Now, it's more than just having a list of names on a prayer page like this. It's an endeavor. It's a work. Prayer is work. Prayer is exercise. Prayer is activity. Prayer is a workout. Amen? I mean, it's more than just praying through names. And thank God we did some tonight. But it's more than that. Prayer is bringing a need of people before God. So I want to give you some examples. And this part here I'm going to spend a little more time on. We're going to do some Bible reading. We're going to look at some passage scripture. I hope you'll write in the margin of your Bible and take some notes there. First of all, I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to see the first thing about this endeavor. Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice verses 16 to 19. 
The first thing I want you to notice in this endeavor, we must be reasonable in our endeavor. How do you pray for other people? What should you pray for other people? If they don't have a prayer need, if Brother Aaron Lee, who's doing well, doesn't have a prayer need, but you know he needs to be prayed for, what do you pray for? Okay? What do you pray for for people? What do you pray for for someone that's new to the church? Okay? I want you to notice what Paul told this church at Ephesus that will challenge your heart as it challenges mine every time I read it. He said in the beginning, I tell you a story with verse 15. He said this, Wherefore, chapter 1, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. Notice this, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now again, you find a recurring theme. Every church that Paul started, everyone that he had involved with, he gave thanks abundantly for them, and he prayed for them. Now when he prayed for them, I believe he prayed for these people one by one. I, pray, I believe he brought their names literally before God. I don't think he just prayed generically for the church. I think he prayed for their names. Now notice what he said in verse 17. What did he pray for? He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glo- of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us inward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now Paul had a pattern and a method by which he prayed for other people. And you might, you'll learn much from this. He had a pattern and method by how he prayed for people. Number one, he prayed for, the, he prayed for spiritual wisdom and he prayed for their enlightenment. You know what he's praying for? God help them to understand the word of God. God help them to understand your word. Now I'm going to tell you something tonight. And maybe you're in that, you're maybe, you're maybe in this sphere as well. There are people who come to this church and churches like this who for whatever reason, they're a little bit slower in grasping and understanding the Word of God. It's very difficult. You can give them outlines. You can give them notes. You can PowerPoint like we do to help people understand. And they, it's, just, it's just very difficult. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not working in their life. And that does not mean the Holy Spirit's not their teacher. The Holy Spirit is their teacher. But for whatever reason, maybe because of maybe reading difficulties or comprehension difficulties or maybe just, just trying to just understand, you know, background and all that, it's just it takes them a little bit of time to get that place. And we've all been there, okay? We've all been there. We can remember being there. But Paul was praying for this church that God would give them wisdom and light. Now, why did he do that? Because, you know what? The God of this world blinds the minds, not only of them that believe not, but he tries to blind your mind and my mind as well. He wants to keep you from understanding the word of God. He wants to keep you from praying and understanding what God wants you to do. And so he's praying for them. He says, Lord, help this church at Ephesus and the believers there that you, you would give them enlightenment and understand what your will is for their life. Notice the second thing. He prayed that they would know the hope of his calling. Now, what was that? He prayed that they would experience the holiness of God and the privileges of grace in their life. He prayed that they would know they would experience the holiness of God and the experiences of grace in their life. Now, listen, if there's one thing we can pray for another, we need to pray for holiness. Amen? We need to pray for holiness. We need to pray that God would help us, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of the word. Amen? We need to understand God's word, that we don't misinterpret God's word, that, we be, that we're very careful. By the way, back in that day, they didn't have commentaries. They didn't have all these other resources there. And so Paul was telling them as the word of God is un, uh, being unfolded right now, and the Holy Spirit's giving them the revealed word of God. He wanted to make sure that they didn't get a wrong interpretation. And by the way, during those times, the churches, again, the churches were, were unraveling at the time. They were unfolding. It was easy for false teachers to come in. 
And they didn't know. I mean, they were all trusting people in those Christian communities. And, uh, and these false teachers would come in and bring heresies and false doctrines in. And when Paul got wind of that, <coughs> Paul had to deal with that. And he had to get these false teachers out and help them have discerning minds. And Paul's telling these people, don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Let me tell you the same thing. Don't, don't, don't start reading all these books here. Get, you know, uh, come see us before you start reading these books here. The famous author of the day, there's a reason why he's writing those books. It may not necessarily be to, uh, to encourage and build up God's people. It may be more because he's trying to profit off people. And what the Bible says, they make merchandise of you. And you've got to be very careful of that. Recently, I heard about one guy that's a heretic on the, on, on the Internet that uh, is out there. And he just criticized a good preacher who preaches in our pulpit, accusing him of good work salvation. If you're not very careful, if you read this guy... And you're not able to spit the bones out when you eat the fish, if you know what I'm saying. You're going to believe this guy and think that we brought a heretic to our pulpit. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That man of God, Dr. John Getch, he is not a heretic, and he's not, he's, not a, and he's not a man of God who preaches good work salvation. I promise he doesn't do that. But this man took something that Dr. Getch said, and he extracted it, and he t- basically, he's, tra- he's basically sensations. This guy's a sensations trying to build a crowd for himself. And you need to be very careful that you are a student of God's Word. You can correctly interpret God's Word without having a commentary. You can get into God's Word and understand exactly what God's Word is all about. You be very, very careful of what you read and what you trust, and don't rely on a commentary to help you. Let the Holy Spirit of God be your teacher and instructor in these things here. So Paul's praying that for them. But he prayed one other thing. He prayed for their understanding. He prayed for their holiness, and that they'd they'd experience the privileges of God's grace. But notice something else. He prayed for them to experience God's power. Look what he says here. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Listen, do you pray for God's power in my life? I'm thankful for a dozen men here on Sunday mornings praying for power. I need it. We need it. They're praying for God to work in our hearts. But listen, you need God's power. And if we're absent of God's power, we ought to sense because somebody's praying for us. There's an absence of God's power, and we need to hunger and thirst for God's power in our life. So Paul was teaching us how to be reasonable as praying. Number two, go with, me to, go with me to Genesis chapter 18, and I want you to see some things. We have to move very quickly. I want you to see some things about the, about the prayer life of Abraham. God put the spotlight on one particular prayer he prayed. Number one, in our endeavor of intercessory prayer, we must be reasonable. Pray for people's understanding. Pray for people to have the power of God. Pray for people to have to understand the hope of His calling, the holiness of God, and the privileges of grace. But notice, secondly, we must be relentless in our praying. Now, relentless sometimes can mean we, we use this word they, we uh, importunity in our praying. Importunity means being persistent, not giving up easily. And notice in, in Genesis 18, I'm just going to extract some things because it'll take about five minutes to read the passage here. But you'll notice in verses 23 to 33, we have the record here of God of Abraham interceding on behalf of his nephew Lot in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a great prayer. This is how to get your prayers answered from God. This is how this is a model prayer. And Abraham, who learned how to pray now at 80-something years of age, is praying for his nephew Lot. Because God came down there, notice verse 22, God came down there with his angels and turned their faces towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God knew at that moment, Abraham knew, their faces turned towards Sodom were not for good. Their faces turned there was for judgment. They were going down there to visit those cities because of their wickedness. And the Bible says this about Abraham in verse 22, which you underline this. Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Intercessory prayer is when you're standing in the gap. 
It's when you're standing before God on behalf of men. Listen, when we pray for people, we must take that responsibility very, very seriously. And so Abraham does an interesting thing in his praying. He uses this methodology where he says, God, in verse 24, if there be found 50 righteous within the city. Now notice this. He's appealing to God's mind and God's heart about righteous people because he says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That was his argument. He says, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Will you not do right? So he's appealing to the holiness of God and the good judgment of God, the good sense of God. And he said in verse 24, Lord, if there be found 50 righteous in the city, if there be found 50 righteous city, will you also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous? He said, God, listen, if there's 50 of your children there, 50 people that have made a profession of faith in you, are you going to destroy them with the rest of those sinners? He said, God, that doesn't sound like you. He says, God, that doesn't, that doesn't coincide with your nature. He said, what, what kind of testimony would that bring? He said, God, would you spare the city? Would you spare the city for that? And he said in verse 25, that be far from thee to do after this matter, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shut up the judge of all the earth do right. So Abraham's appealing to God. Look what God does. <coughs> in the very next verse, God says, okay, Abraham, that's, that's a good prayer. He said, uh, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the place for their sakes. That's a great prayer. Hey, let me tell you something tonight. San Francisco is a wicked city. But I tell you, God has spared that city because there's more than 50 righteous in that city that perhaps are praying for God to spare his hand that many more people get saved. Amen. I mean, our city's a wicked city. God needs to do something there. But God told, God told Abraham, he said, if I find 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. Abraham now, <coughs> now knows he's got an audience with God. He says, okay, God. He says, now, I don't want to wear you out. But he goes down further, and he says, Now, Lord, peradventure there lack five of the 50. He says, Lord, Lord, if there are 45 righteous, would you spare the city? Now, to you and I, this is almost like a little kid saying, Well, what about if I do this? Would you give me that? And he's kind of like he's bargaining with God. And I have to tell you this, he is bargaining with God, okay? But he's not bargaining for himself. He's bargaining on behalf of someone else. He says, God, well, if, if they lack five, there's just 45. Would you spare the city? And God says, okay, Abraham, that's a good prayer. He says, if there lacks five, there's just 45. I'll spare the city. Well, then he goes down to 40. Then he goes down to 30. Then he goes down to 20. Then he gets down to 10. I mean, you can see where he's going with this. He gets down to 10. He says, now, God, if there just be 10 righteous. I mean, just imagine with me. Let's just say that city had 50,000 people in it. If there were just 10 righteous, God said, I would spare the city. What a merciful God. Amen? What a merciful God. And so Abraham, now, Abraham, you say, why did he stop at 10? Why did he go down to 1? Because I think he counted on his hand that, that Lot's family consisted of about 10 people. There was Lot and his wife. He had some daughters. He had some son-in-laws. And he counted it up. And I think he came to his conclusion. I think there's just about, I think that Lot has about 10 members of his family. I'm just praying for God to spare the city. Just spare the city for my, for my loved ones. Hey, that's a good prayer. You ought to pray. Hey, listen, that's how we ought to pray for unsaved loved ones. Amen? And so he's saying here, Lord, if there just be 10 righteous, would you spare the city? And God said, if there be just 10 righteous, I would spare the city. Now, I just want to go a step further. If Abraham had prayed for five righteous, I think God would have spared the city. And Abraham, God would not have wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the, off, off the face of the earth there. And he, it, but God granted him what he requested. And he said in verse 32, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Bible says, verse 33, And the Lord went his way as soon as he left communion with Abraham. And Abraham came, uh, returned unto his place. I'm just saying tonight, look at that prayer. He was relentless in his praying. Let me give you some thoughts here. Now, what is relentless praying? What is circumstantial? Perventure, there be found. It's circumstantial. He's praying. He's been creative in his praying. Lord, if there just be 50 righteous, if there be 10 righteous, it was circumstantial. He says, Lord, if you find that many, would you spare the city? Now, before he prayed that prayer, God was intent destroying the whole city. 
It was circumstantial. Hey, he was specific. Did you notice how specific he is in his praying? A lot of our praying is general. A lot of our praying is going around the world accomplishing nothing. He was specific in his praying. Hey, notice something else. He said, I am but dust and ashes. He was self-effacing. He's basically saying, Lord, I'm nobody, but you're great. He said, I'm nobody. He says, God, you don't have to answer this prayer for me. I'm nobody. But he came in humility before God. So, our, so when, we look at, when we look at the endeavor of intercessory praying, it must be relentless. It must be reasonable. But you notice something else. And I want you to go to Colossians 4.12 with me tonight. Colossians 4.12. You know where I'm going with that. Our, our intercessory praying must be relentless. must be reasonable. But it also must be wrestling. We must wrestle in our praying. Now I want you to see one of the great warriors of prayer. He's one of many we find in the Bible. He's mentioned twice in the book of Colossians. In verse 12, his name is Epaphras. Epaphras means lovely. He was a lovely Christian. He was the pastor of the, of the church at Colossae. He loved them. He was a minister. He was a servant of God. He heard that Paul was in prison. Paul had never been down to Colossae. Paul did not start the church of Colossae. Some believers, they got saved, went down there. A church planting team went there. God started it. God raised up this man, Epaphras. He became the pastor. He labored there. And while he, when he went to see Paul in prison, uh, he spent some time with Paul. He kept up his daily walk with God. Paul heard this man pray. Paul watched this man pray. I think Paul was humbled by hearing the prayers of Epaphras. It challenged his life. And Epaphras became a model, a pattern for prayer, a pattern for intercessory prayer. Would you notice verse 12? And if you're a young person, I pray especially that you listen very carefully as we read this. He said, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he was a member and he was a minister, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. He said, in other words, I'm sending you my greetings. I'm sending you this letter to encourage you. But your pastor sends you a greeting. He salutes you. And a salute was basically saying, hey, I, have, I send you my respects. I send you my greetings. I want you to know I miss you. I want you to know I'm lifting you up before God. He says, Epaphras saluteth you. Notice this phrase, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. He's saying, listen, Epaphras prays for you. I've heard him call out your name. I've heard him pray for your specific needs. I've heard him pray about your situation. I've heard him pray about the need in the pulpit. I've heard him pray for the need in the church. I've heard him pray for the city of Colossae. He said, always. Listen, I believe this man Epaphras just didn't pray once a day. I think he prayed recurrently. He embodied praying without ceasing. But what's interesting, Paul defines this man's praying by using one Greek word to describe the intensity and the fervency of this man's praying. Look at the phrase there. Always laboring fervently. Laboring fervently. It's one word. In the Greek, it's the word agonizomai. Agonizomai means in agony. It means with fervency, with great intensity. Agonizomai basically means he was wrestling in his prayers to God for them. Literally, he understood he was in a spiritual wrestling match. He understood the pressures. He understood the powers of darkness, the spiritual wickedness in high places, and the principalities and powers were working against him. Paul watched this man wrestle and writhe in prayer. He saw this man like John praying out. If you want a good biography to read to inspire your prayer life, read the prayer life of John praying high. John praying high was a missionary to the Indian people. 
Praying High got a hold of God. He got the nickname Praying High because of his prayers. Listen, there was a preacher, and, and, and I just blanked out what his name was, J. Wilbur Chapman, that was way up in the, in the northern lake areas. J. Wilbur Chapman was one of our great preachers of a generation ago. J. Wilbur Chapman did city campaigns, but he got to this one place where he felt like he had a ceiling and didn't know what to do. And uh, someone told him that Praying Hyde came to hear him preach. And he said, Mr. Hyde, I want to come, come see you. I want to ask you if you could pray with me. And they, he found out they were in the same hotel together. And uh, he went to the room number. He inquired downstairs. They gave him the room number. He went to the room number where John Praying Hyde was at. And he saw the door was slightly ajar. And he thought, oh, maybe there's house cleaning in there. And he heard some talking and some voices. And he thought, well, there's must be maybe he's talking with somebody there. And he kept listening and listening and listening. After a period of time, he says, I don't think there's anybody in there. I think there's Praying Hyde in there. And he kind of pushed the door open, and there was Praying Hyde on the floor. He had a chair in his hands. He had the chair up in the air, and he was pre talking to God, and he was resting in his prayers for J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman heard his name called out. He was praying for the citywide campaign. He was praying for sinners in that city to get saved. Resting with God is when you get a hold of God, and God gets a hold of you. You feel like you're in, a, you're in this match. You're in this ordeal where you can't stop praying. You lose sight of time. You lose sight of everything that's going on, and drops of sweat are coming off your face, and you feel like, man, I, I can't get off my knees till I'm finished praying. What he's saying about Epaphras, Epaphras labored fervently for these believers in his prayers. He prayed for Sister Smith. He prayed for Sister so-and-so and Brother so-and-so. He prayed for them. Notice, he prayed for them that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You want to see revival, that's how you pray. That they'd stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. We need to rest on our prayers. Our praying is not complete. We have an agonized for others. Paul used the same phrase in Romans 15, 30. He told the church of Rome, I want you to strive together with me in your prayers. And the word strive is a stronger form of agonizomai. It's actually the word sunoagamizomai. It's a word that means basically you're wrestling in your prayers. Man, you're, you're wrestling in your soul. You're wrestling with God. Now, what, how do you rest in your praying? Well, first of all, we're praying against spiritual wickedness in high places. But let me tell you some things we're wrestling with. We're wrestling against giving up for people giving up too soon. We're wrestling against sleeplessness or sleep disorder. People falling asleep in church, amen? We're wrestling against discouragement. We're wrestling against overwhelming odds. Hey, we're wrestling. You look at our prayer page. I mean, I'm looking here. I'm looking at Brother Dan Garlic. I mean, we, we, we need a church, a church not just a preacher. We need the church here to wrestle with God in prayer that Dan Garlic would be healed of that, of that pancreatic cancer. We need to wrestle with God that Pastor Dennis Fountain would get through this Hodgkin's lymphoma treatment, all this chemotherapy he's going through, which dropped out all of his hair which would give him loss of appetite and insomnia and, uh, and uh, loss of his taste buds. We need to wrestle with God that God would heal him. We need to wrestle with God that Mrs. Mrs. Glorianne Gibbs would get healed. We need to wrestle with God for Dr. Rick Martin and the Elo Baptist Church and the upcoming campaigns they've got going on for God to work. We need to wrestle with God this week for Dr. Richard Jacobs and Nashville Baptist Church to get off to a good start and to sustain that good start. I mean, wrestle with God in our prayers is realizing we're contesting for the souls of men. We're contesting for the 
lives of people. We're contesting for God's people to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Hey, listen, Paul just wrote about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that this is the will of God, even your sanctification. We're to be praying that every one of God's people, every one of the brothers and sisters in Christ here at church, that we stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That's the endeavor of praying for one another. So we see the encouragement in praying for others. We see the endeavor in praying for others. Would you notice very quickly as we close tonight, would you notice the enablement that comes from praying for others? I want you to go with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 very quickly, and I want you to highlight with me some things about how, how Elijah saw this enabling in his praying. The first thing I want you to see is we look at chapter 17, verses 17 24, we see a spotlight on Elijah's prayer life. The time this happened, I don't know, maybe it's between, the, it's between a year and a half and three years since the famine hit the land. A year and a half to three years. He's in the city of Zarephath. Zarephath is the hometown of, King, of Queen Jezebel. Zarephath means smelting furnace. God was trying his faith. God sent him to a widow woman. Remember that? And this widow woman was a very depressing picture. He walks through the gates of the city. He sees this one widow woman there. She's very, very just pitiful looking. She's gathering sticks. And he thought, okay, God took care of me at the, at, at the little drying brook. I guess this must be the widow woman. God's going to take care of me here. He says, I, I just can't wait to see what God's going to do for me. And, uh, and she, he says, hey, ma'am, can you bring me a little cruise of uh, water? And a little cruise of water is just a little bit amount of water. You've got to bear in mind, they're, they're, they're in a famine, in a drought, and water was very precious. Wherever they got the water from was very precious. And she said, no problem. They were in a drought. I can bring you a little bit of water to kind of quench your thirst and help your parched tongue. And he said, by the way, while you're at it, would you bring me a morsel of bread? And remember, a morsel is just a crumb. He said, just bring me a crumb. Bring me a crouton. Amen. You know, just bring me something. I gotta, give me a cracker or something I can put in my mouth. And then she flipped out. At that moment of time, she said, hey, she said, you know what? I can get you the water. But she says, I'm down to nothing. All I've got is a handful of meal, you know, a little widow woman's hand, a handful of meal and a cruise of oil. I'm going in to make a meal. I'm gathering sticks. I'm going to make the last meal for me and my son, and then there's nothing left. And she said, you're asking me to give you something to eat. She says, we're down to our very last meal, which is not much of a meal. You're asking me to give you something. And so Elijah had to encourage her. He says, listen, go and do as thou said. Go make your last meal. But he said, make me a cake first, and afterwards make for God. He says, have faith in God. Put your faith in God. He says, here, I'm going to test your faith. Lady, he says, you make me a cake. He says, don't, don't give me a morsel. He asked for a morsel ahead of time. He says, now I want you to give me a little cake. He says, I want you to make me a little cupcake type of thing. He says, I want you to bring me a, a, a something to eat here. And he says, God will take care of need. And the Bible says for that period of time, when she did that by faith, she put God first and fed the man of God. The Lord took care of her, and the cruise of oil and the handful of meal never ran out. I mean, God took their need. I mean, she had meals tw at least twice a day. God met their need. It never ran out. God just took care of things. Well, they've been there, and she's watched him, and she made him a little prophet's chamber up in a loft, and she got him a little prophet's chamber. He had a bed there, probably a table and a candlestick there. But this woman, as you watch her, she just saw Elijah there, that she's just supposed to take care of him. She had very little interaction with the man of God. She was not convinced in his mind that he was a man of God. In her mind, as we read through the story, she's thinking, you know, just, just whatever. God wants me to take care of this guy. I'm a pagan. Whatever. I'll take care of him. And so God had to wake this lady up. And for her benefit, and also for the benefit of Elijah, God was going to do something great. And so one day, this lady comes in screaming to Elijah. She says, sir, my, there's something wrong with my son. Look at verse 17. 
It says, It came to pass after these things that the son of the woman of the mistress of the house fell sick, and his sickness was so sore there was no breath left in him. Now, there's nothing more frightening. There's nothing more frightening than if one of your children gets deathly sick, and all of a sudden they turn pale, and they stop breathing, and they lose their pulse, and their pulse is dropping. And you got, and back in that day, they didn't have 911. They didn't have EMS services. I mean, you had to take, you had to tough your way out of that. I mean, can you imagine that? This is a widow woman, and she has no husband. This is her little boy, her son. The Bible says he got so sick, his, he, he just, his pulse started to drop, and his breathing became shallow. And the Bible says there was no breath left in him. I mean, that is a very scary situation. And as that happened, notice what happened. In verse 18, she's mad. And it's like, she's coming to Elijah and says, your fault, sir. She said, what have I to do with thee? What shall I do with thee, O thou man of God? She's mocking him. She didn't believe he was a man of God. She said, God said you're a man of God, but I'm not convinced you're a man of God. She said, I don't care about this cruise of oil and this meal and all that kind of stuff. She said, I'm still not convinced you're a man of God. And she said, my son's dead. And she said, it's your fault. Did you come here to call my sin to remembrance? Now, whatever that sin was that she did, she's thinking in her mind, you know, I never got this right with God. She says, you came here to bring the judgment of God in my home. Well, Elijah's feeling pretty bad because, first of all, it wasn't his fault that the, the boy died. Secondly, he's feeling very bad because the boy's dead. Thirdly, he's feeling very bad because he's thinking, what am I going to do about this situation? I, I, this, this kid's dead. And so she says all this in verse 18. Look what he says in verse 19. He didn't argue with her. In fact, he didn't even apologize. I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting. He didn't apologize. He didn't give her any sympathy. I mean, I, I think he had a low, if you, if you test his spiritual gifts, he probably didn't, he scored a zero on mercy. Amen, you know? And, and you look at it, and he says, give me thy son. In fact, I think he said it in a very prophetic way. Give me thy son. Give me thy son. And that's what he's saying, ma'am, all this time I lived in your home. I've tried to be your friend. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for your boy. You've kept your boy from me. By the way, let me tell you this. The wrong thing to keep your boy and keep your children from the man of God or keep him from church. He says, give me your child. He says, now, you've kept your boy from me. You've kept him from being around things of God. Now your son's dead. Give me thy son. He says, give me thy son. Commit him to me. I want you to trust your son with me. I want you to give him to me. So she did. The Bible says here that she gave him uh, her son. Elijah carried him up to the prophet's chamber to the loft and laid him upon his own bed. And Elijah did what we call intercessory praying because notice Elijah never prayed a prayer like this before that. Elijah had before this never prayed for someone dead to come back to life. Elijah before this had never prayed something great and mighty like this. I mean, he's sweating bullets at this moment because he's thinking, okay, Lord, now you've got to do something here because you sent me here to take care of this lady, and I just don't believe that you took her son away from her uh, and all this. There's got to be something good out of that. And notice, if you would, I'm going to tell you some things very quickly. He carries him to the loft, puts him on his bed. Look at verse 20. Look, he cries to the Lord. I mean, he's crying out. When the Bible says he cried out, I mean, he's shouting out, God! God, would you help us? God, the Lord of heaven and earth, El Elyon, Lord, would you help us? He's crying out to God. Notice his prayer. Oh, Lord, my God. He'd proven God down at the drying brook. He'd proven God down in the mountains of Gilead. He'd proved God when he came into the city there, of that city of Zarephath. And once again, he needs to prove God that God is God. Hey, listen, now is the time to make sure God is your God. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, my God. 
Has thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he did something remarkable in verse 21. He stretched himself upon the child three times. And he cried to the Lord three times, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. He touched a dead body. He made contact. He stretched himself. In other words, he went to great risk in his praying. He exercised great faith in his praying. And he prayed the same prayer with urging, Oh, Lord, my God, give this child back his soul. He didn't beat around the bush. He said, God, give this child back his soul. Hey, listen, the Bible says in James, the, 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 body, without the, the, the body without the soul is dead. The body without the spirit is dead. He said, this kid's dead. He doesn't have a soul. He needs his soul back. He said, God sent him back. Did God take his soul to heaven? Yes, I believe God did. And God sent his soul right back to that boy's body. He sent it back. And the Bible says, the Bible says God heard the voice of Elijah, verse 22. The soul of the child came to him again. And he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down to the chamber. He brought him to the mother and said, see, thy son liveth. I'm saying tonight, God does the supernatural through praying. God, God worked through Elijah and this enablement was God used his intercessory prayer to bring this child back. Now, I'm not going to tell you tonight you can pray for someone dead to come back to life. That's not just how God's going to work, okay? But they may be near the valley, they may be in the valley shadow of death, and God can reverse in that situation. I've seen that happen. And they may be in a situation where the doctor doesn't, can't do anything more, but God does something for them. I'm just saying tonight, we need, we need to see a supernatural work of God. God does the supernatural. But notice quickly, Acts chapter 12, verse 5. God uses our synergy. We're done. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Peter's cast into prison. There's 16 soldiers outside guarding the prison. There's no way, humanly speaking, there's no way. He's chained up. There's no way he's coming out of jail. It's a Roman prison. Acts 12, 5 is a great passage about the church. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. Would you notice this next phrase? But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The best message I ever read on that is out of R.A. Torrey's book, The Power of Prayer. You need to read that, how he just gets into how corporate praying there. Prayer was made of the church unto God for him. Let me tell you tonight, let me tell you tonight, this church was on their knees this church was relentless in its praying. They prayed without ceasing. This church was unified about a common goal. This church places complete, total dependence upon God. The church was at exercising faith. And so as we close tonight, I want to encourage us as a church. We're just a small handful of people. But I want to encourage us as a church tonight to be unified in prayer. To pray for God to do what we cannot do. We need to pray this evening for God to give us a friend day like we've never seen before. We need to pray for the hardest of sinners to get saved. We need to pray for pagans to be converted. We need to pray for the fire revival to come down. Listen, tonight I'm calling on you to pray for me. And I'm calling on God to help me to pray for you. Brethren, pray for us. Let's unite tonight to gather together to pray for Friend Day and our revival. 
and our Thanksgiving banquet, and for Sunday after Sunday, I want to urge more men to be at this altar on Sunday mornings with the 12 we're already praying. I urge more men to join these men in prayer, to pray for the power of God, for sinners to be saved. I'm urging you tonight not just to submit prayer requests. I'm urging you tonight to do what Paul said. Brethren, pray for us. Pray for God's protection. Pray for God's power. Pray for God's wisdom. Pray for God's leading. Pray for God's vision. Pray for more faith. Pray that God will do greater things in your life. Brethren, pray for us. I'm urging you because the baseline of involvement for every Christian, we can pray for one another. Everyone can be involved in intercessory prayer. And if you're not praying, then listen, you're playing. If you're not interceding, then what are you doing? We need to get to the place of being like Paul, that always in every prayer of mine, making requests with joy. Will you pray for us? Will you pray for your church? Would you pray for those little children in the nursery? Would you pray for the children in our children's program? Would you pray for our teenagers? Would you pray for our campus ministries? Would you pray for the marriages? Would you pray for the adults of the church? Would you pray we'd more, reach more people with the gospel? Would you pray that hearts would be open? Would you pray for God to do something? He said, brethren, pray for us.